It may just be me, but it seems like it is becoming even more difficult to walk as a believer in America. Now, don't get me wrong, it's always been difficult to walk as a believer anytime in the history of humanity, especially when Jesus said uh, the world hated him, don't be surprised if the world hates you too. So it's always been difficult, but we seem to have, at least in America, kind of a pass as believers in the sense that our nation was founded on biblical principles, the idea that God was part of our nation. Now that has been stripped away. God no longer is part of the public square. He's not allowed in schools. He's not allowed in the public comment or conversation. So it seems like to me it's getting even more difficult to walk as a believer. Last week, I, I talked about the beginning or the part of the, uh, of the Dutch resistance movement and a theologian asked a question about, well, the people came to him and said, hey, our neighbors, our Jewish neighbors are disappearing and we don't know where they are. That was during the time of Hitler when he was coming and rounding up all the Jewish people, taking them off to concentration camps. And they said, we don't know what to do. And the theologian whose name was Henry Kramer replied back and says, I cannot tell you what to do. I can tell you who you are. If you know who you are, you will know what to do. And they became part of the Dutch resistance movement. And that is the key. If you know who you are, you will know what to do. The text today is revolved around this thought of the, of the believer, the, the new creation in Christ Jesus, and the new state of the believer in Christ Jesus in comparison to what they used to be in the past. We are living in a time in America right now when right is wrong, when evil is now good, and again, some things are very obvious to discern. You know, lying, murder, I mean, those are really easy. You know, we don't do that. I mean, that's not what we're supposed to do. Those are easy to discern, but some things are a little bit more difficult, especially the ones that society is screaming the loudest about and is demanding that we agree with it and comply with them in this particular area, whatever it would be. And if not, they will cause harm to us. That takes courage to stand when that is happening. When the society now has turned against you to stand in the truth takes courage and it's always most difficult when there is a cost to pay for standing for truth. If you know who you are, you will know what to do. In Ephesians chapter five, God has made believers a new creation in Christ to testify to the world about his grace. So he was taking us, us who were dead in our trespasses and sin and made us alive together in Christ so that we could be a testimony of his grace to those people that don't know him. We become living testimonies, living memorial stones for his grace and his mercy that has been displayed to us. It's a good question that has been asked is how can I walk as a believer in this fallen, broken, and corrupt world when so much stands against us now? How can I do that? If you notice in verse number one of chapter five, Paul starts with therefore. And you know how it is, we've already talked about, we always ask the question, wherefore is the therefore, therefore. And the idea is it's drawing upon what has previously been said at the end of chapter four. He wants to draw upon that. Since believers are new creations in Christ, they have a new direction for ordering their lives. And it looks a whole lot like God. Look at verse number one. Therefore, be imitators of God 
as beloved children. The same word was used of Christ at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Same word, as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the first thing he says is therefore, therefore draws upon the end of chapter four is since God has forgiven you in Christ, forgive other people. Because God has shown grace to you, show grace to other people. Because God has been merciful to you, be merciful to other people. Be imitators of God. What God has done for you, do for others is what he's trying to say. And the believers forgiving of each other just as God and Christ forgave them shows what it means to be imitators of God. We're mimicking him. Actually, that's what the word means, mimic. It means an, uh, to mimic is where we get our English word to mimic. Mimic God, imitate, follow him, follow his pattern. See, he took us from being slaves to sin, which we sang in that song, and adopted us into his family by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. He's placed his Holy Spirit in us as a guarantee of an inheritance that's yet to come in the future. He's been so good to us. So therefore, since we are no longer what we were, we are new in Christ, the idea then is exhibit family resemblance. You're part of his family. Look like him. In forgiveness, look like him. In grace, look like him. In mercy, look like him. All those things he talked about at the end of kindness, goodness, look like him. Be imitators of God. Be mimicking God. So we are to imitate God by forgiveness and love. And these are essential characteristics displayed by the Father's work in Christ. This idea of forgiveness and love towards us. Love for people who don't deserve it. And when we're imitating God, it, it, it really we're imitating Christ. Because Christ came and walked and we have a visual of what he did. It's recorded for us in the word, how he walked in this world. So we can mimic that, how he walked in the world. He now becomes the norm, the standard, the model by which we pattern our lives after. We look to him for guidance and instruction. You know, years ago, Max, some of you may still have him. The, the armbands with, with WWJD, what would Jesus do? Remember that? And so people had the armbands on the wood. And, and I can just hear people say, well, yeah, that's great, but I'm not Jesus. How am I supposed to do that? I'm not Jesus. Well, it's true. You're not Jesus. I understand that. But really, it's not a bad statement when you think about it. He is the model for how we're supposed to walk in this world. So before we make any decision, we ask ourselves, okay, how would Jesus handle my situation? Now, that presupposes a lot of things. It presupposes, number one, that you know him as Savior, first of all, and two, that you know enough of his word, what he has written, so you can see exactly how would Jesus handle my situation. So we come back to the word, how did Jesus handle this? Well, Jesus doesn't have my situation. I guarantee you, somewhere in the ministry of Jesus, something that you're going through right now, he gave you an example for so it presupposes two things. You know him, and secondly, you know his word well enough that you can model what he would likely do in that situation. So here's this one who loved us. And how did he love us? He gave himself up. That's a demonstration of his love. He gave himself up for us. That is a, scarcely would a person die for a good person. Never would someone die for a bad one. But here's one when we were all bad, he died for us. He demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the kind of love we're talking about, the kind of grace that we're talking about. So Jesus willingly went to the cross to redeem people, self-sacrifice for the needs of others. 
So the issue is a self-sacrifice issue. And really, when you think about it, this is written in context of a local church. A church at Ephesus had both Jews and Gentiles, and they were learning how to walk in unity with one another. Sometimes you have to give up your right, self-sacrifice, for the interest of somebody else. He self-sacrificed. He gave himself up willingly. John 10, when Jesus was talking about being a good shepherd, he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, voluntarily, self-sacrifice. The sacrifice of a person's own interests out of concern for the welfare of others is the quality above all that promotes harmony in the church. That's what he's trying to show. There cannot be any unforgiveness in the church. There cannot be any unkindness. We should be good and loving and, and, and gracious to each other. It shows the harmony in the church. In fact, in Philippians chapter two, they're dealing with disunity. Paul says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It doesn't mean you ignore your own interests, but you're concerned about other people's interests as well. Instead of, oh, well, they'll take care of it. No, I'm concerned about you. And I'm willing to lay down my right so that you get what you need to be able to walk in this world. Old Testament, yeah. no one would think, I mean, I don't think that the smell of an animal burning on an altar would be a sweet smelling savor. That doesn't sound good to me. And you think about it and you're going, oh, that, that just, that would be horrible smell. How could it be? He gave himself up as a fragrant offering. How could it be a fragrant offering? All of those sacrifices in the Old Testament. Well, God has prescribed them under the law for reasons of sin offering and guilt offering and peace offering and trespass offering so that the offerer could be in a relationship with him. He prescribed them. So to offer them, it becomes pleasing because it is an act of obedience. It's a fragrance to him. It smells good to him because it's an act of obedience. Exodus 29, verse 25. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It's not pleasing because some animal died. It's pleasing because it's an act of obedience and faith. It is, it is a food offering to the Lord. Remember when we talked about in Isaiah chapter 53, one of the comments was, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, the Messiah, to crush him. And from that crushing is where this fragrance comes from. It's a fragrant offering to the Lord. It pleases him. His sacrifice changed everything for us. This fragrant offering and sacrifice convey that Christ handed himself as an offering and sacrifice that would fulfill all of the offerings and sacrifices so none need to be repeated ever again. He's finished them. Because if you know who you are, you will know what to do. We have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now there's a transition from self-sacrificial love that we first saw in verses one and two to that of self-indulgent sensuality. Look at verse number three. But, so there's a contrast here. This is how you are as new creations in Christ Jesus, imitators of God, but there's a contrast. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So from self-sacrificial love to self-indulgent sensuality here, a contrast once more. He's bringing back this idea of the contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. There is a distinction between the two is what he's saying. So he returns to this contrast that he talked about, that we talked about actually last week from 17 to 24. And there's certain things that, are not proper among saints. It's an interesting statement, as is proper among saints. This, this points to the existence of some sort of standard, a known standard in the churches, how they were to walk in this world. So this idea is not even mentioned, not even fitting, not to be said among the saints because they already knew this is the standard that they were to live their lives by. Up to the point of, uh, of Ephesian letter, when it was written, all that was revealed by God up to that point was how they patterned their lives. As some sort of standard was there, but sexual immorality is out of place. It's not part of the standard for believers. That's not the, that, we don't measure up to that kind of standard, sexual immorality. It's actually the word pornania. We get our word porn or pornography from this word. It's a term signifying mostly general sexual activity, but it also focuses in on adultery and intercourse with prostitutes. Now, in the Greek world of the first century, and by the way, our society is starting to look a lot like the Greek world of the first century, okay? All right. In the first century, uh, the Greeks, non-believing Greeks, did not agree with adultery. They thought adultery was wrong. In fact, they thought it was a crime because it damaged the most sacred of their institutions, the family. And only legitimate children could become and inherit the goods. So it would destroy the civil fabric of society. It was a threat to society. Also in that day, there were state-run whorehouses. Tough word. These parlors especially offered slaves for carnal pleasures, but some women became porni, streetwalkers. That's where the name comes from, streetwalkers. So adultery really wasn't in the realm of the Greek world. They didn't think that way. But to go to a prostitute or to have a mistress, no big deal in the Greek world. Sex was no big deal. It's just something you did. It's like playing golf. Hey, let's go play a round of golf. That's all it was to them. It meant nothing. So a mistress or a prostitute and temple prostitutes. In fact, you could go to the temple, pay money. You could have relationship with a temple prostitute and then you'd have a spiritual experience. It was not a problem in the first century. He says, listen, it may be a common practice, but that's not to be named among us. That's not who we are. We were like that, but we're not like that anymore. And, and there's a list, the word covetousness, which normally means greed or idolatry, but in the list, because it's surrounded by a bunch of sexual terms here, it's probably unrestrained sexual greed is what we're talking about here, whereby a person assumes that others exist for his or her own gratification. Covetousness, idolatry. So he doesn't want believers to even talk about these things, what, what unbelievers are doing in secret. Don't even mention them. Well, Paul, you just did. You just mentioned them. Well, not exactly. He told us what's going on. But, he, but what he wants is he doesn't want us thinking about it all the time and talking about it all the time. Because thinking and talking about sexual sins creates an atmosphere in which they are tolerated and which can indirectly even promote their practice. 
Remember, the battle is in the mind. Remember we talked about that. The battle is in the mind. No more stinking thinking. So don't even make it a conversation piece. Don't even talk about it. He doesn't want sexual sin to become the object of interest in any kind of conversation. Don't bring it up. Don't talk about it. And he's talking about foolish talk and coarse joking. That is, again, in reference to sex. That's in view here. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt talk, uh, corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Theirs was a very sexual society, and that's all that they wanted to think about and talk about and participate in. Let's go play some golf. That's all they wanted to do. Andrew Lincoln wrote, so in Ephesians, the coarse joking prohibited may well involve the use of suggestive language and double entendries. Thank you. I never could say that word. Thank you, whoever said that. I appreciate that. Again, such conversation is described as not fitting. And again, for this writer, the reason appears to be that to treat sexual matters as a topic of amusement is not to take them seriously enough and is likely to lead to an atmosphere in which the actual practice of sexual vices is also accepted too easily. What you think about, what you talk about becomes part of your life. There's nothing wrong with having a good gift of wit to be a witty person but a witty person attached to a filthy mind is a curse. Warren Wearsby said, two indications of a person's character are what makes him laugh and what makes him weep. So instead of having our thoughts and our thinking wrapped around the coarse joking about sexual things that are happening in society, instead, let your mouths be full of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Thanking God for what you were to what you are today and what he's gonna take you to be into the future, but be thankful to him And the heart of Christian speech is thanksgiving, which replaces the six vices that he listed right here. Instead of all of those, thanksgiving is who we are. We're people of of thanks. We thank God for what he's done for us. We know that we are not the same people that we were. We are new creations in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Again, the word of God teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So instead of our mouths being filled with coarse jesting and talking about sexual stuff that shouldn't even be named among us, we fill our minds with thanksgiving. We're thankful to God. It's an essential aspect of our faith. It acknowledges God as the ultimate source of all things. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. He is our sustainer. He's a source of all things. This here is three through six is a solemn warning. It's a solemn warning about the dire consequences of those who practice the vices listed. Practice the vices listed. The person who is characterized by unrestrained sexual greed is in fact an idolater, worshiping self, elevating the desired object to the center of their life. The sexually immoral and the covetous person each desire to satisfy the appetite by taking what, not, what does not belong to them. So those that are in bondage to their sexual appetites are not those over whom Christ and God rule. They're ruling themselves. Practice. See, these warnings deal with the habitual practice of sin and not the occasional sin. So we're dealing with the issue of character versus event. 
Character is what you habitually do. Event is something that happens. We repent, we turn from it. But character is what I do on a regular basis. That's what I practice. So he's dealing with, he's dealing with the habitual practice of sin. And I could just see a person right now going, okay, that's, sin is bad, but how many times a week can I do the sin and it not be a practice and not make it a habit? Uh, I'd say one, two, maybe three times and then it's not a practice. That really is the wrong question. And your attitude is demonstrated even in the question. You want to still do it. No. These people who do these things, Paul says, are not believers who have lost their salvation. He's not dealing with, remember the contrast is between believers and unbelievers. He's not dealing with believers who have lost their salvation. That's not the issue at all. These are people who have never been saved. The contrast continues. No true Christian can ever be lost. And they prove the reality of the faith by the conduct, by their life, by the obedient walk that they walk. O'Brien wrote, the apostle is not asserting that the believer who ever falls into these sins is automatically excluded from God's kingdom. Rather, what is envisioned here is the person who has given himself or herself up without shame or repentance to this way of life. So if we look in our life and we see these things and we say, I practice these things on a regular basis, you need to ask yourself a question. Are you in the faith? Have you been born again? Are you a new creation in Christ? Are you just tagging along with everyone else? There'll be some that come along and say, listen, God doesn't care about this kind of stuff. This, pff, there's not gonna be any judgment on sin. That's, that's what he says right here. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Ah, don't worry about it. God's not gonna judge sin. Those are the empty words. Believers are not to be led astray by anyone who claims that there will be no judgment on sin. Paul is simply saying God's view of sin should be taken seriously. And there is a contrast. We were this, now we're this. We were in Adam, now we're in Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Everything has changed. Now what Paul is saying is, well then should I just disassociate myself with every unbeliever that I know? That's not what he's saying, no. There was even a guy that went out in the first century and he hated, I think it was the first, maybe in the second century. I lost track. Why around that time? He hated the world so much as a believer. He went out into the desert on a 30-foot pole and he, and he lived on a 30-foot pole on a platform for 30 years because he hated the world. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about. We're not talking about disassociating ourselves with unbelievers. No, no, we're talking about disassociating ourselves with the behaviors of the unbeliever. We can still have acquaintances and friends that are non-Christians. We love them, we care for them, we serve them, all of that kind of, but their behavior, we don't, we disassociate ourselves from the behavior. First Thessalonians 4, Paul says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you become more and more like Jesus, that you abstain from sexual immorality, there's the word again, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Before we didn't, we were slaves to sin, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Again, the contrast is there between believers and unbelievers. Paul is continuing this contrast. He wants us to know you were, now you're not. Things have changed. In fact, he even reminds the people at Corinth that things in their life have changed. You were this way, now you're this way. Look, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, again, that's our problem as humanity. Don't you notice it's like listed number one in all of them? Nor idolaters, nor uh, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles will inherit the kingdom of God. And we were one of those. All of us were at least one of those. That's how we were. And we in that state could never inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You were like that, but now you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You were no longer that old person enslaved to sin. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Don't submit again to the slavery. Do you know it's impossible for darkness and light to coexist in the same spot? Try it out. Go into your closet, shut the door, turn the light on, turn the light off. It's dark. Turn the light on. Does the darkness flee? No, it stays there. No, of course it flees. Light and darkness cannot be in the same spot at the same time. It's not possible. So Christians, as the object of God's love, would be inconsistent if we become partakers with those who are objects of God's wrath, those not in the kingdom. So don't even partake with them is what he's saying. Again, there's, a, there's, this, there's this contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. And the reason why is because we are testimony to his grace in this world. We're a testimony to his grace. So Paul's not talking about the general distancing from all aspects of the life of the Gentile word, but in particular, a separation from its immoral practices. Boy, you can just open up a newspaper or turn on, turn on the television. You can start listing United States of America, all of the immoral practices that are commonly accepted by our society. 1 Corinthians 15 says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. If you know who you are, you will know what to do. So now Paul emphasizes the change that took place in the believer when we became Christians. And this is the positive reason for not joining in with them. This is the positive reason for not joining in in their immoral actions. Look at verse number seven. Again, we have the word therefore. Therefore, wherefore is the therefore, therefore. It's just recounting what has happened between verses three and six. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness. Again, here's these contrasts going on. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. We talked about it before. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So walk in love, walk in the truth, and walk in light. So darkness we saw in chapter 4, verse 18, was ignorance about God and his ways describes now the immorality that was just listed, but light represents truth and knowledge. What is so striking here is it doesn't say that you used to, to, to live in darkness and used to, now you're living in light. It's more than that. What is striking here is that it's not said that they are in the realm of darkness or light, but the people themselves are actually darkness or light. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are light. You are shining in this dark world. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are darkness. You are dark. 
You have no existence. You have no, 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 no state in the, inside the light. Because the sons of disobedience in verse number six, those people, it's, a, it's the same term he used at the beginning of chapter two. Same term. Sons of disobedience are just unbelievers. Again, the contrast between believers and unbelievers. In Ephesians chapter two, verse one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that phrase is referring to unbelievers. And so he's, again, he's continuing the contrast of believers and unbelievers going on here. The believer's behavior is to conform to their identity, who we are in Christ. If you know who you are, you will know what to do. He said believers are able to discover the will of God in any specific situation when we give ourselves to him. We order our lives and we pay attention and we're obedient to his word. He will give us direction in any course of life. Yeah, goodness, mercy, truth. To confront believers, to confront believers in such a way to show their wrongness is the same as exposing them. I don't like that word confrontation. Do you? I don't, you don't have to answer me, but I mean, just, I don't like it. I don't like confrontation. Whenever I have a confrontation, I don't like it. I don't like confrontations. But we're to confront this world. How are we to do that? Egan Peterson refers to this as conf- confronting somebody or something with the aim of showing him or it to be in some determinate respect at fault. That there is a question as to whether some person or thing conforms to some standard of rightness and wrongness and that the person or thing is being directly confronted as opposed to being allowed to pass unnoticed by some other person or thing in such a way that the answer to the question becomes clear. Confrontation. So I have a suggestion. Since I don't like confrontation and you probably don't like confrontation, let's try this. Let's try confronting people in humility. Not in arrogance, not in I'm in better than you and I'm in better position than you. No, no, let's see if we can confront people in humility, which means we love them. We want to see their lives changed. We want God to be part of their lives. In other words, confronting with humility. I think we need to confront because if we just let it pass by as if if it's okay, soon everyone begins to think it's okay. That's why they keep promoting all of this stuff on television. So you begin to think, well, everyone thinks that's okay. Let's confront with humility. So as believers refuse to join in evil actions and display a different quality of life, they cast their illuminating light into the dark recesses of the surrounding society and will always expose its immoral practices for what they are. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Expose the darkness by your light is what he's saying. Now let me warn you, when we do this, evil hates it when we do this. It does not like to be exposed. It would rather operate in the dark. So shine the truth in the darkness is what he's saying. And how do we do that? By your life, by who you are in Christ. Stephen Kingsley wrote, I used to work in the carpet cleaning business and enjoyed success selling our pet urine removal process. I carried a high-powered black light in my van and upon smelling pet odor, would ask the homeowner if he would like to see the extent of the damage. Being composed of protein, urine glows under a black light. With the lights out and shades drawn, the homeowner would follow me through their house 
Usually there were far more spots of dried urine than the owner expected, and often it could be seen on drapes, stereo speakers, the back of the couch, and splattered on walls. Ew! <laughs> yeah! The reactions were often quite dramatic. One lady said, I don't care what it costs, just clean it up. <laughs> Another said, I'll never be comfortable in my home again. See, the black light did not cause the problem. It only revealed it. The offense was there all the time, causing a bit of a stink, yes, but when the extent of the problem could actually be seen, most people were ready to do something about it. Shine your light. Expose them by your lifestyle is what he's saying because you are no longer what you were. You are now new creations in Christ Jesus. You are not the same. 13 and 14, or 13 and 14a is, is a little bit confusing. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. That's easy to understand. For anything that becomes visible is light. That's, that's kind of hard to understand. J.B. Phillips in his translation said it like this. It is even possible after all, it happened with you, for light to turn the thing it shines upon into light also. That's what, he's, that's what we're gaining upon here. By you shining your light in this world, it exposes the darkness and that darkness then by faith in Jesus Christ comes into the light. That's the idea. Verse 14. Now, it's not a direct quotation from anywhere in the Old Testament. We, we don't seem to find it anywhere. Typically, as it is written, is, is mentioned beforehand, but there isn't any direct quotation here in the Old Testament about this. We don't see it anywhere. It likely comes from a well-known Christian hymn or tradition related to baptism. In baptism, before you went into the baptismal water, you took off your old clothes. You went into the baptismal water, you put on the new clothes. So some sort of hymn or saying that was directed toward the time of a person's baptism is probably in view here. It, it actually could be an allusion to these two passages out of Isaiah, but probably just a Christian hymn regarding baptism. Isaiah 60 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Or chapter 26, verse 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Could be those two, but most likely a Christian hymn in the time of a person's baptism. So Paul is exhorting us believers to be strengthened by the light. Who is the light? Jesus Christ, I'm the light of the world. Be strengthened by him. And their determination to live out of that power, to walk and order our lives after this. We were this, now we're this. Don't even look at this. Don't even talk about this kind of stuff. What it does is it draws our mind back to the old way that we used to live this life. Yes, I understand this is a dwelling sin principle that still tries to pull me away from God, but I am not that person. You are not that person. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You are now light in this world. Walk as children of light. Paul sums up verses 15 and 16 of what we just talked about. He said this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And yes, they are. They are evil. How do we walk? If you know who you are, you will know what to do. We need to know and understand who we are in Christ, what he has done for us, and out of that truth, live our lives, and as we go, our little light will shine, and hopefully, by God's grace, we'll draw others to him in the light, so they move from darkness to light. Oh, he has been so good to us, and so gracious, and so merciful to us. He has been so kind to us, and now he says, here you are. I have given you life eternal with me forever. 
live out of this truth day by day and show the world you are my testimony of grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this passage. It just reminds us that there's this contrast between what we were and what we are now. We shouldn't even think about going back to what we were because that's not who we are. We are not that person anymore. So we thank you that we are new creations in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. And we thank you, Father, that you're at work in us by your spirit day by day, conforming us into the image of your son in the sanctification process. You're at work with us. You have not abandoned us. You have not left us. And we need, we beg you for strength to have courage today to confront with humility, to speak the truth with humility, to love, to be kind, to forgive, to be gracious, to be merciful. We need your strength because that's who you are and you ask us to mimic you and we want to. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.